0: The International Monetary Fund, the IMF, is one of those institutions that gets in the news only when it is at the center of a controversy, like when it imposes economic conditions on a country that is facing default on its government debts, for that country to then receive a loan from the IMF, one that often catalyzes lending from other sources. IMF conditionality is viewed by some as necessary medicine and by others as punitive. How did the IMF come to be the arbitrator of crisis countries' policies? How does the IMF operate and towards what ends? Has it been capable of self-analysis and, when necessary, changed its approaches? I'm joined today by Charles Collins, who is uniquely well qualified to address these questions. Charles worked in a number of capacities at the IMF for over three decades, including heading the team producing the semi-annual World Economic Outlook and working on many challenging lending operations. He left the IMF to serve as the Assistant Secretary for International Finance at the U.S. Department of Treasury from 2010 to 2013. After that, He was the Chief Economist at the Institute of International Finance. He then returned to the IMF to be the Director of its Independent Evaluation Office from 2017 to 2023. And in the interest of full disclosure, Charles was my boss when I was the Chief Economist in the U.S. Treasury's International Finance Office, and he is now a Senior Advisor to Econofact Charles, welcome to Econofact Chats. Oh, thanks so much, Michael. It's a,
1: it's a real pleasure to participate in this Econofact chat, and also very pleased to be joining the econofact
0: team. Well, it's great to have you on the team. I guess I'm your boss now. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'll try to be as nice to you as you were to <laughs> me. Charles, the IMF is one of the three so-called Bretton Woods institutions, the others being the World Bank, whose official name is the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development and the World Trade Organization, the WTO, which is the successor to the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trades, the GATT. What was the original concept behind the establishment of these institutions?
1: Well, if we go back to 1944, as the end of the Second World War approached, uh, 44 countries led by the US and the United Kingdom, met at the Bretton Woods Hotel, uh, Mount Washington in New Hampshire to set out an overarching vision for the post-war international trade and financial system, which which aimed at restoring global prosperity after the war ended, and avoiding a repeat of the calamity of the Great Depression of the 1930s, when countries had resorted to tit-for-tat trade wars and competitive devaluations of their currencies. At the conference, it was agreed to establish three new international organizations to underpin the new architecture, the IMF to oversee a stable international currency system, the World Bank to help finance European reconstruction and the development of poor countries, and the GATT to watch over the trade system and drive trade liberalization.
0: The mission of these organizations has evolved over time. For example, the World Bank shifted its focus from reconstructing war-ravaged Europe to developing countries as an increasing number of colonies achieved independence. How has the mission of the IMF shifted? Originally, the IMF was intended to police this Bretton Woods system of fixed
1: exchange rate parities. Its main task was to judge when adjustments to the parities were justified. And it also offered short-term financial assistance to help countries respond to balance of payments pressures that could threaten their fixed exchange rates. However, this system of fixed parities came under increasing pressure in the early 1970s, As the United States in particular, faced sustained large current account deficits. When the Bretton Woods system broke apart in 1973, uh, the world shifted towards a floating exchange rate system, and it was not clear what the IMF's role would be in this new world. But then, after the Latin American debt crisis erupted in 1982, the fund found a new role when it stepped in to help deal with the very large-scale financing needs of these countries, as they lost access to international capital. And ever since, the fund has been heavily involved in dealing with a series of of global shocks and crises, including the breakup of the Soviet Union, the Asian crisis, the global financial crisis, and and the COVID pandemic. It's also been increasingly concerned with helping low-income countries meet their balance of payments financing needs, especially as many of these countries have become increasingly over-indebted and face debt crises of their own.
0: Well, you mentioned how the IMF shifted its focus in 1982 with the Latin American debt crisis and other debt crises as well. Charles, can you describe the types of challenges facing a country that has a debt crisis and why and how the IMF has taken a lead role in addressing these crises?
1: Well, sure. I mean, a country faces a debt crisis when it is no longer able to borrow, to beat its disobedient financing needs. Or to meet the interest and in principal payments falling due on, on its debt. Typically this happens when investors, both domestic and foreign, lose country, lose confidence in the government's ability to prudently manage its finances, which often results in a sharp drop in the exchange rate and, and rising inflation. Resolving this problem will, will usually require a combination of credible domestic policy adjustments, together with debt relief from creditors to at least stretch out debt service repayments and sometimes to forgive a part of the debt altogether. The IMF's role uh, is to help countries deal with this very dangerous situation that incurs the least damage for the economy of the country, but also limits stress to the global financial system. It does this in a number of ways. It will provide advice and technical support to country officials as they seek to design an effective and convincing adjustment program. It also provides short-term financing to a country Uh, that meets the agreed policy conditions so that adjustment uh, can be spread out over time and thus reduces the need for harsh upfront measures. Uh, This can often make the program more politically acceptable and thus thus more likely uh, to be effectively implemented. In addition, uh, the IMF's involvement provides reassurances to foreign investors and to other official lenders like the World Bank that the country's policies are being corrected as needed and thus help to catalyze new lending. The IMF can also play a very useful role in coordinating debt relief from the creditors by setting a benchmark for how much relief may be needed overall and helping to facilitate agreement
0: on appropriate relief from different creditor groups. Has this approach been effective?
1: Uh, often it, it is a very effective, particularly when the IMF works with committed and politically empowered governments in fact, I myself have worked on some very successful programs, uh, including India in the early 1990s and Brazil in the early 2000s. But there are certainly cases uh, where programs have not worked so well. And prominent recent examples, uh, including the programs with Greece uh, during the Eurozone crisis when, when you and I were at the US Treasury, uh, and Argentina in 2018. In these cases, the IMF provided very large amounts of financing, uh, but the programs did not restore confidence uh, and stability was
0: uh, was not quickly restored either. In these programs, Charles, what are the typical prescriptions for countries? Well, typically the IMF wants to make sure that the
1: country's fiscal policy is corrected uh, to ensure that the government finances are sustainable. Uh, and that the most pressing fiscal needs can be met. Uh, It will also want to make sure that the monetary and exchange rate policies are consistent with low inflation, stable balance of payments that can be financed as needed. And I believe that a robust program should also include commitments to address structural impediments to growth and ensure adequate attention to income disparities since otherwise a country may find itself returning again and again to a crisis as popular support for good policies wanes as economic outcomes continue to disappoint.
0: So as to the popular support for policies, some of the biggest criticisms of the IMF's policy prescriptions are that they typically include cutting government spending and raising taxes. One quip is that IMF stands for It's Mostly Fiscal. People complain that this thrusts the country into an even deeper crisis one that particularly hurts the middle class and the poor. Why does or did the IMF emphasize fiscal retrenchment and has experience supported this approach?
1: Well, as as I said, fiscal imbalance is is often a root cause of the crisis. It must therefore be addressed to provide a lasting solution and restore confidence. But there is certainly a risk um, that harsh austerity uh, does cause great immediate pain as social benefits may be cut, as public spending is slashed, uh, jobs may also be lost as the economy falls into a deep recession. So you know, over time, learning from this experience, I think the fund has applied some lessons uh, for how to achieve the necessary fiscal adjustment uh, while incurring less pain on, on the country and, and therefore actually increasing the chances of, of, of success. For example, uh, a credible fiscal adjustment can be spread over, over more years, if it involves a demonstrated commitment to institutional change that, for example, raises the revenue base uh, or makes spending less subject to to waste and corruption. Um, Similarly, these spending cutbacks should be concentrated in cutting wasteful spending such as, for example, big white elephant projects uh, that really may not be needed while actually devoting more money uh, to the social safety net to protect poor and vulnerable groups in a very difficult situation. That said, I have to say that a recent report by the Independent Evaluation Office uh, that I, I, that, that, uh, I ran uh, found that more could indeed be done, for example, to address structural impediments to growth, since fiscal sustainability is much easier to achieve in a growing economy. So the fund certainly needs to include fiscal within its recipe, but I think the the,
0: the uh,
1: shibboleth of it's mostly fiscal uh, probably needs to be corrected too. It's, it's partly fiscal and, and a bunch of other stuff as well.
0: Okay, I won't use that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned earlier that some prominent programs did not work out as intended. Can you explain or do you know what went wrong in those cases? Well, that's, that's,
1: that's a tough question, and the answer is different in the different cases. After all, many things can go wrong in very, dif- in very risky situations. The program itself may be poorly designed. The external financing raised may be inadequate and fall short of what was uh, expected, Uh, the implementation of the program by the government may fall short of the commitments that it made, and there may also be new shocks uh, that that push a program off track. And often the failure is the result of a combination of these factors. But I have to say that one factor common to a number of very large programs that failed, like Greek uh, and Argentina programs, is that the fund came under a lot of political pressure from its shareholders to provide support for a program that was not truly adequate for dealing with the very deep imbalances that prevailed. For example, the Greek program in 2010 did not insist on the debt reduction that was ultimately required. But I also have to recognize the fund faces very difficult choices in highly uncertain, volatile situations. And the fund's job, indeed, is is to take on risks when no other creditor is prepared to lend. Um, But I think another lesson from the IEO's work is that you know? In these situations, it's particularly important that the fund's decision-making process needs to be transparent and based on the best technical analysis to reduce the, these risks that political pressures lead to support for inadequate programs.
0: So it's a little like the Tolstoy effect: all unhappy programs are unhappy in their own way. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, Tolstoy didn't work with you at the IMF, did he? <laughs> he. Uh,
1: We'd like to have a man of his, his vision. Yes.
0: <laughs> uh, well, you were there. Maybe that was a good substitute. Yeah. Um, the IMF takes on other roles as well. One of them is whether countries have a fairly valued exchange rate, and this is often politically charged. For example, successive U.S. governments, under both Democratic and Republican administrations, have accused China of manipulating its currency, keeping the renminbi cheap to advantage its exporters. Without going into too much detail, how does the IMF gauge whether currencies are fairly valued? And what do these analyses say about the current landscape? It's a a very politically charged issue, of course. And it's been a difficult one throughout the
1: IMF's many years of existence. So over time, the IMF has developed a very complicated methodology for exchange rate assessment. Essentially, it tries to answer the question, Is a country's external balance aligned with long-term fundamentals? And if not, what are the sources of of the deviations? I'm not gonna try to explain the full complexity of the approach, but to simplify, if the country uh, has a medium-term projection of its current account surplus prepared by the IMF, if that projection is persistently much higher than the surplus that the IMF estimates should be expected on the basis of country fundamentals, like demographics, productivity, and fiscal position, then this is a sign that the exchange rate is undervalued, raising concerns that a country is unfairly manipulating its its currency uh, to keep the currency low and and generate large amounts of exports, which may be good for the country, but may be less good for the rest of the world. The IMF then produces a a report each year, uh, which goes through country by country, gives the IMF's assessment, based on this technical analysis, as well as judgment from country-specific circumstances. The most recent report is available for 2022 and finds that the overall current account imbalances have actually been on a declining trend since the mid-2000s when concerns that you mentioned about currency manipulation by China and others were were strongest. And in fact, China's current account uh, has been judged to be broadly in line with fundamentals since 2017 which is consistent, I think, with the fact that the RMB's value, China's currency's value, is now much more influenced by market forces than it used to be.
0: So along with doing um, coming in in crises and doing these exchange rate um, overviews, um, even when countries are not in crisis, the IMF conducts country surveillance and issues reports. What is considered in these reports? And do countries tend to follow its recommendations?
1: Well, that's, that's that's a good question, and, and the, the answer, of course, is, is that the countries do not always follow the recommendations, um, but to step back, the IMF produces an annual report uh, on a country's policies. Uh, it's called an Article 4 Consultation Report. Additionally, um, these reports were directed primarily at whether countries were following the commitments made to the IMF in Article 4 of the Articles of Agreement about managing the exchange and payment system. But over time, uh, particularly after the collapse of the the fixed parity system, uh, these reports have become geared much more towards providing more general advice to countries on macroeconomic management, uh, consistent with the country's particular stability and growth needs and challenges, as well as a broader concern to foster a more stable and well-functioning global economy and international financial system. Uh, More attention has now been given to what the IMF calls cross-border spillovers, uh, which means the impact of one country's policies on other countries. For example, you know, given their size, you know, the, the largest economies such as the US and China, you know, their policy choices can have a very big impact on the global economic and financial environment. So when countries sign the Articles of Agreement, uh, they are undertaking an obligation to follow the commitments that, that, that are laid out in, in Article 4. For managing exchange and payment systems, but there is no obligation to follow these. This more general advice be given by the fund. Uh, now, I think in some countries, uh, the IMF advice can actually be very influential, very helpful, especially in smaller, lower-income countries which do not have sophisticated institutional capacity for macroeconomic policymaking. Uh, the fund can also be influential in larger countries too. For example, if the fund brings insights from cross-country experience or influences the the public policy debate. You know, most IMF Article 4 reports are are now made public and often get a lot of attention in the press. But it's also true that countries may not follow IMF advice, particularly where that advice involves very hard political choices. So in in practice, the truth is the IMF advice only really has teeth when a country runs into such problems that it needs to gain access to IMF financial support.
0: Charles, as I mentioned, Your last position at the IMF was to be the Director of Independent Evaluation Office, or the IEO. This office, which is fully independent from the management and the staff, studies a range of IMF policies and draws on outside experts to write reports on the efficacy of these policies. You've already mentioned a couple examples of these reports. Can you discuss how the IMF responded to the criticisms in the IEO reports?
1: Uh, sure, I'd be happy to do that, but let me first perhaps give a look, like an overall background on the IEO. Uh, the IO has a mandate to look at the broad range of IMF activities, uh, but it is a very small office, and it therefore tries to be quite strategic, it focuses on areas where there the, are the greatest current concerns. Um, in my experience, the IEO is indeed operationally very independent uh, in choosing its topics, reaching its own conclusions although it does work closely with, with fund management staff and board, which helps make the IAO more persuasive, I think, in helping the institution learn from its experience. So I, you know, you're a professor, I think you understand that if you come out with too harsh criticism of your students, they tend to uh, be unhappy and, and leave your class. What you want is to keep the students engaged by giving them from time to time some uh, recognition that their, their work is doing well. It's, it's sort of similar for the, for the IAO. Um, One of of the aspects, though, that makes the IEO quite effective is that there is a well-established follow-up process which involves a management implementation plan uh, to act on the recommendations that the IEO makes that are endorsed by the executive board, uh, which is then carefully monitored by the IMF's audit office. The board itself has to endorse this implementation plan, which provides an additional layer of discipline on management and staff to take the uh, implementation plan very seriously. In practice, the IEO, I think, certainly in my my perspective, it's had really pretty substantial impact on the fund in its 20 years of existence. And we we laid this out in a recent book uh, that was just published that provides a retrospective or or perhaps a self-evaluation of of the IEO's activities. A good example is how the IMF has greatly stepped up its work on fragile and conflict-affected states often those emerging from from very unpleasant civil wars. Uh, So IMF work is now based on much more care to recognize the particular deeds and capacities of these countries rather than just to apply a cookie cutter approach used in other countries in less strained circumstances. But I also have to recognize that some change can come quite slowly where it involves a major shift in in corporate culture. So the IAO has to be patient in the same way that professors have to be patient with their students.
0: Uh, Well, I try to be patient, uh, but I also am known as sometimes being harsh uh, (laughs) for their own good. So um, we know that economic policy is supposed to be done technocratically and outside of politics. But in fact, we know that at the domestic level, politics impinges upon what uh, choices are made. And it should, I suppose, in some ways, it's reflecting the will of the voters. How does politics play a role for the IMF, which is a transnational institution?
1: Uh, I think that's, that's a very good question. Um, I mean, It's important to recognize that, you know, unlike central banks, which are you know, very technical institutions given a certain mandate and then given independence to pursue the mandate, uh, the, the IMF is political in the sense that it's deploying uh, taxpayers' money often in quite large amounts. And not surprisingly, the shareholders, uh, the countries that have contributed to the IMF, want to keep very close tabs on what the IMF is doing and are not prepared to give the IMF fully technocratic governance structure that independent central banks now have. Um, At the same time, it's important that the IMF operates according to the best economic reasoning. Uh, This is important, I think, for the IMF's legitimacy uh, particularly when giving very hard advice and, and, and making tough judgments. Uh, so how, do, how does this work in practice? Um, well, the IMF staff is indeed fully meritocratic uh, in all but the most senior positions. And you know their job is to provide the best technical advice that they can uh, to the senior decision makers, the management and the executive board. Um, decisions are made by the executive board. Uh, it meets three times a week and considers the recommendations made by management. And this is this is where the political considerations uh, play an important role. The directors on the board effectively represent the country shareholders, while the managing director uh, is appointed by the shareholders and to be effective uh, must maintain the full confidence of the shareholders. Now, most of the time this governance structure does work quite well, but as, as I have mentioned, there can be unresolved tensions between political and technocratic considerations uh, in some of the biggest and most important decisions, such as on large loans, uh, which can lead to unfortunate outcomes.
0: Finally, Charles, much of your professional career has been as an insider in public service, and most of that was in the IMF, but then you had this experience in the independent evaluation office. Did that alter your view of the work of the IMF, or did it Help to reinforce a view you might have already had?
1: I think so to, to a large extent, uh, my time at the IEO reinforced my perception that the fund is a very capable institution,
0: uh,
1: able to adapt effectively to take on newly emerging challenges. I mean, most pretty all of our reports find very good things to say about what the IMF is doing. Uh, but on the other hand, there's certainly room for improvement. I think you have to be worried about whether the fund can continue to, 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 to be as effective going, going ahead as the world continues to be battered by, by big global shocks. Um, and one of, the, one of the problems is that as the fund has taken on a broader role, uh, taking on new issues like, like climate change, for example, uh, its you know, expertise in, in core competencies uh, like fiscal policies, balance of payments policies, monetary policies, has, has been spread increasingly thin. And from my perspective, part of the problem is that the cooperation with the Bretton Woods sibling, uh, the World Bank, is is not very effective or even very deep, even though they're neighbours facing each other across the street. And for me, there's an increasing problem as the two institutions' activities increasingly overlap, which is something we pointed out in another of our IEO IEO reports. Um, Another related challenge is that IMF staff are encouraged to be Jack and Jill's of all trades, able to move quickly onto new challenges, uh, which gives us versatility and, and quickness to IMF responses, but also can contribute to a lack of depth of expertise, uh, needed to provide real value-added advice to experienced country officials who themselves have just as good economic education as, as IMF staff. And, and finally, this political dimension of the fund's work. I, my, my sense is it's becoming increasingly difficult as the rising geopolitical tensions among the major IMF shareholders make it increasingly challenging to reach consensus on how to deal with critical problems, such as, for example, the rising debt burden now faced by many low-income countries.
0: Well, Charles, a lot of people have heard of the IMF and understand it's important, but I don't think they had the depth of understanding that they would have liked about this very key international institution. And Uh, drawing on your experience and explaining these things today has been really, really helpful. So thank you very much for joining me today on the Kind of Fact Chats. You're
1: you're very welcome. It's been a great pleasure. And and I hope I've helped to increase people's understanding of of the IMF, the the, the positive aspects, but also some of the challenges that it it certainly
0: does face. They certainly have. Thank you, Charles. This has been a chats to learn more about a and to see the work on our site. You can log into www.acontifact.org. The is a publication of the Fletcher school at Tufts university. Thanks for listening.